0: Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James 1.19 What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James 4.1 Seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14 12. The application coming out of all that we looked at last week was to begin to understand the most difficult part of any conflict was seeing our part in it. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Hebrews 3 13. Hey, hun, do you think that I feel I always have to win an argument? Well, Hey, that's not an answer. Actually, that is an answer. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I invalidate people when I get worked up. Sometimes, yes. win an argument, you don't really win anything. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Be, Be one devoted to one another in love. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. Honor one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Love others. Forgive others as Christ loves and forgives me.
1: You're ready. Can we get
0: out? Can we get out? Can you guys? Yes, we can get out. What can I carry?
1: You know, I love that video because I just try to imagine, think about what the world would be like if that's, how we, uh, if that's how we approached one another. If we were prayerful and thoughtful and biblical and planned out our times with each other. If we uh, did as James has talked about, that we would, that we would think through our words carefully and that, that our goal would be to love and support one another. And this is where James has been taking us. He talked about relational conflict in chapter 1. Talked about it in chapter two, talked about it in chapter three, and now as we begin chapter four, he's talking about it again. It's almost like he thinks we need to hear it. Like it's a it's a thing. Like relational conflict is an issue for many of us. And so James is gonna gonna start today as we begin chapter four by encouraging us to face the reality. The reality of our relationships and the reality of ourself. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going, to, we're going to dive in. Father, I thank you for our time here this morning, time we've had to worship and fellowship. And, and now I, I pray for us as we open your word that uh, you would speak to us. That uh, I know you have brought each one of us here this morning for a reason. And I pray that as you speak that reason into our hearts that we will listen, that we will agree, embrace, and, and follow through on what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. And so James wants us to face a reality about our relationships, and so he's gonna begin in chapter four by asking a rhetorical question, and the rhetorical question is this. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? And maybe you've asked this question yourself. You know, you've looked around, you've noticed there's a lot of conflict in our world, and maybe you've asked that. Why do people fight why do people disagree when they could get along? Maybe some of you grew up in a family where your parents fought a lot, and you wondered why do they choose to fight when they could choose to get along? Why can't they work this out? For some of you, it's extended family, you know, it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, you get together with other family members, and there's a lot of tension, and maybe you've thought to yourself, why can't we just work this out? Why can't we just love one another and get along, and yet it, it doesn't seem to happen, uh, maybe some of you have seen neighbors who fight. I, I could tell you that as the, the pastor here, I've been involved over the years in, in actually several conflicts that involved neighbors. Neighbors, all of whom were Christians and all of whom couldn't get along and eventually in both of these situations, uh, they, they lawyered up and there was suing taking place and I, all, all sorts of people just stood around and said, why can't they just sit down and have a cup of coffee and work this out? Why can't they work it out? And we see this happen at, at work. We, we see this conflict that happens on the road. Uh, there's violence in our world. It happens between people groups. It happens between nations. We, we've gotten so used to it when it comes to our own political leaders that we have just kind of given in. They, they fight, they argue, it's about their careers. We don't even expect them to get anything done anymore but maybe sometimes we sit back and go, why can't they just sit down around a table and work it out? Maybe you've wondered why, why do people do that? Now, here's what James wants to say to us. Notice Notice what he says here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among who? You. Right, so he's he's looking at us. He's it's like James, if he was preaching, he'd come sit down right in front of you, and he just preaches to you. So what's the deal? What what causes fights, and what's causing quarrels in your life? So James is a pastor, and James has been observing his congregation. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can just tell you this. As a pastor, being up here week in and week out, you'd be amazed what you can see and discern from up here. Like, I can tell how many of you had a good morning and how many of you are still working that out, you know? Like it's easy to see when there's tension and when there's issues. And and James, as a pastor, I mean, he's been doing counseling and he's probably done some intervening and some refereeing, and he's noticed there's a lot of conflict in his church. And, and some of it's just below the surface, but it's there. And it's you know what the problem is when you have when you have this kind of tension and 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 issues in your heart, it always comes out, and some of it is, has kind of made its way to the surface. And, He's talked about some of it. He said there's some real tension between rich and poor people in his church and uh, there are people in the church who are positioning for power and prestige and so they are fighting with one another and positioning and trying to get people on their side. There are people in his church who were jealous of one another instead of being happy for one another. There there are people who come to church, and they'd sing some songs, and they'd praise God, and then they'd curse each other in the parking lot at Starbucks. And it was creating chaos, and it was ruining worship, and, and it was disrupting the focus of the church, and it was staining the reputation both of the church and of the gospel. And I just sense, you know, James is just beside himself. And so he says to his people, what's up with this? What's causing this? And then he gives them a possible consideration he just says you know do you think there's any chance that what's causing all this is you that it's your passions that are at war within you the point is this that before there's conflict out there there's conflict in here now it talks about passions and uh, some translations give the word pleasure there or desires there. The Greek word is the word hedone that we get the, the English word hedonism from hedonism which is just a belief that pleasure is to be the chief goal the chief end in in life often hedonism is rooted in materialism if you're into the philosophy of materialism that is that uh, we are just a physical body there's no spirit there's no soul to us and so when we die we are dead. There is no more. No more thought, no more life. And then what happens is a lot, oftentimes you get hedonism built on top of materialism. So if there is no life beyond this life, then you might as well get all the pleasure that you can right now because this is it. This is hedonism. This is the pleasure. It's the, that the chief goal in life is to be comfortable. It's, you know, might as well get as much entertainment and distraction as you can. Uh, it's about you know physical pleasure, uh, getting buzzed, getting high, having sex, whatever that is. It's about getting toys and possessions that will distract you. It's about having nice vacations that will kind of get you again to forget about how hard your life is and how difficult it is and that you're just going to die and that's going to be it. And this is what he's talking about, about pleasure. Now, pleasure in and of itself is, is not necessarily wrong, uh, but when we put pleasure before God or to, to kind of put the, where the rubber meets the road when we put pleasure before others. Because it's really easy for us to come to church and say, oh, well, I love God and God's first in my life. And James keeps saying this, though. What it really comes down to is, do you love other people? Right? Are you willing to get uncomfortable? Are you willing to put your pleasure aside so that you can serve and love other people? Like, that's the real test. James keeps saying again, and again to us. Uh, But when our love for pleasure begins to consume us, and when it's what we think about, and and, and when it's what we seek in the wrong way, or maybe it's a pleasure that is contrary to God's word, then the Bible says we have a problem. And here's James' logic. James is, is speaking to believers. So what he's describing is this, and this may sound familiar to you. When you have a believer who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and on the one hand, they have a desire to live for Jesus, to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. But they're a double-hearted, double-minded person. James talks about the double-minded person in every chapter in this book. Here, it's a person who's double-minded, double-hearted, if you will. On the one hand, they want to live for Jesus. On the other hand, they want to live for pleasure. And they have both of these, and both of these reside in the heart. And when you have both of these in the heart at the same time, it creates a battleground inside of you. It causes. Tension It causes wars because, you know, every time you have to make a decision in your life, you're like, well, am I going to go with Jesus this time or what I want with his agenda, my agenda, with comfort or with faith, with often, often means we have to step out of the comfort zone uh, about doing it for me or doing it for others. And he says, you get this battleground inside of you. And when you have a, a war going on inside of you, it's always going to spill out into your relationships. It brings war into your marriage, your family, your house, your workplace, your school, and it brings war. into your your church. And of course the challenge is, let's be honest, we live in a pleasure-obsessed culture and billions of dollars are spent every year to get you to desire things that you don't have, things that you don't even need or you didn't know you needed, but money that's being spent to get you to look at things, obsess on things, figure out a way to buy something, take a loan for something, to love something, to consume something, to reorient your life around. And even in the church, there's a lot of narcissistic, uh, you know, pleasure-centered theology that is preached from a lot of pulpits, it's written in a lot of books and, and blogs where, you know, pastors will say things like, you know, God is here to serve you, and God is here to make you happy, and God is, you know, he just wants to make you rich, and make you healthy, and give you whatever you ask for, and give you more Facebook friends, or, you know, grow back your hair if you need that, or make your business successful, but but that's what make God, makes God happy. I read a guy the other day who said, you know, what, what makes God happy is when you're happy, as if God's just up in heaven and he's just a little bit not fulfilled. And what he needs is for you to be happy because he has no agenda. He's not up to anything. He needs you to come up with something and tell him what to do so that he can jump into action and be your genie and give you whatever you want. And, and in fact, that not only is this not scripture, it's antithetical to everything that we know about God and life that he's given us. Scripture says that when we belong to Christ, we die to ourselves and we, we live for Christ. Paul identifies the real problem here in 2nd Timothy 3 he puts it this way he says for people will be lovers of self he's talking about the the end days or the, the end period of days which certainly we're probably in people will be lovers of self they they'll love themselves they love pleasure they're lovers of money why do you love money because money can buy what you want what you desire what you lust for money can buy you comfort it says they'll be proud and arrogant. What does that mean? It means that, that we'll want things because we think we deserve things. Have you ever seen something you didn't have, God didn't give you, and you thought, I want that, and I'm gonna get it because I deserve it. See, that's what advertisers will tell you. You should buy it, you should take a loan because you deserve it. Proud, arrogant, abusive. That is, we'll use and abuse people to get what we want. Disobedient to parents who won't let us have whatever we want. Ungrateful for the stuff that we have unholy, heartless, uh, unappeasable, even when we do get what we want, we're still not satisfied or happy, slanderous, without self-control, we just keep going after what we want, brutal, not loving good, and here's where it really gets down to it. Paul says, lovers of, of what? Pleasure. We'll try that again. Lovers of, rather than lovers of God, yeah. And that's the problem. And James says Christians are like this. They're like these little walking civil wars within themselves. And he says you desire and you don't have, so you, you murder and you, you covet and you're jealous and you cannot obtain, so you, you fight and you quarrel. You see something you want. You see something someone else has that you don't have. And instead of being happy for them, you're jealous and, and you obsess on it. It could be some pleasure, some thing, some remodel, some square footage, something they drive. It could be that they have a spouse and you don't. They have kids and you don't. Or you have kids and they don't. I don't know. It could be a job or it could be, you know, they have the GPA you want or the health or the house or the popularity. And so your solution is you deserve it. You want it. You'll take it by any means necessary. And in fact, what James talks about here is, is murder. Now, it may be that he's talking metaphorical. His, his big brother did that. Jesus said when we have anger in our heart, that's just the same as murder in God's eyes when it comes to judgment. In other words, James says, you know, some of you are homicidal in your hearts in the way that you think about one another. It could be literal that some, some scholars think that maybe this had happened, that there had been a murder that took place in the church for this whole reason, and there was scandal and disgrace on the gospel because of this, but, but the sense is this. That James is talking to people who are so obsessed with getting pleasure and comfort that they're frantic. They're frantic. All of their life is about this and they can't get it. And because they can't get it, they're bitter and they're jealous of people who have what they want and it's infected their heart. And they're at war, and it's infected their marriage, their homes, their relationships. And even if they do get what they want, they're still not satisfied. They're obsessed. It takes over their lives and their passions and their words and their actions. It's infected their church. You know, people are taking sides, they're taking it out in the parking lot, you know, business meetings are getting ugly. And so James goes on and says this: You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. So now, James does an interesting thing. He's, he's kind of talking about this, this, this kind of situation where people are frantic, where they want stuff. And then he, he kind of breaks and talks about prayer for a minute. Which I think is hugely instructive for us. What he's, what he's saying is this. I think James is saying that prayer becomes a struggle for the double-hearted person. For the pleasure-obsessed person, prayer becomes difficult. <laughs> and maybe you've experienced this. He's, he's describing people who, um, you know, they want to pray because they're Christians. And, and they want to pray because they believe God hears them. And, and they want to pray because Jesus has told them to. But prayer is hard. Because sometimes they want to they pray for things that are inappropriate. So maybe they're jealous and they want something that that they shouldn't have and and they, they know they can't pray for that, like that would be wrong. So pretty soon, prayer becomes a little like this. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Like, you know, praying for your day and praying that God will bless a meal and praying for your kids. And then you like, you want something, there's something you want that you don't even deserve, that you shouldn't even have, that you can't even afford, but you're going to go pray for that. Like, God, I want that. And then you're like, oh, I shouldn't pray for that. That's wrong. That, you, you know you shouldn't pray for it, so you don't. But that feels kind of awkward, like God doesn't know. God's up in heaven going, well, I didn't even hear that. I wonder what they were thinking. Like, you know know what I mean? It feels weird. Like God knows I'm thinking about it. It's a strange place. God knows I'm not praying about it. So pretty soon we have two prayer lists. Uh, Well, really, we have the stuff we pray about and the stuff we can't pray about. And, and if that feels weird, James is like, well, that is weird, <laughs> you know, like, who, who does that? And then maybe it, it creates this inner tension, and so um, maybe you even stop praying for things that are appropriate, because he says, well, you're praying for good things with bad motives. So, for instance, I don't know, maybe you're praying, well, God, I, I, I pray that you'll give me a raise at work. Um, but it's not so that you can be more generous or, you know, it's not like, God, if you give me more money, just give me your agenda. It's like, well, God, I want to raise because there's some stuff I want to buy that I can't afford right now, but I want it and I deserve it and I've worked hard for it. And so he says, you know, you're praying with, with bad motives, with improper motives. So guess what? God doesn't give you that. Right? And then maybe you're like, well, well, you kind of start to give up on prayer. It just becomes this big mess. It's convoluted. It's like the opposite of everything the Bible says. Prayer is just this very simple time when you, when you get with God and you pour out your heart to Him. And James pointed to this, if you can't do that, if prayer is just this convoluted battle, that might be something. <laughs> that might be a red flag. Like If you think this is weird, James would say, yeah, that is weird. When prayer is conflicting for you, that's probably not right. So what do we want to do? Well, I think he says what we need to do is we need to examine uh, our devotion. We need to examine our hearts. Now, is James saying that Christians should not pursue and desire pleasure? Absolutely not. I think God wants us to enjoy the good things that he's given us. God wants us to enjoy the sunshine Whatever that is, when it comes back someday, you know, in the middle of July, when that day comes and you wander out on the deck and you just kind of that's why I just I melt. I have to sit in a chair and just enjoy the sun. God's like, yes, you you should enjoy that. Yeah. When you sit down and have just a a a wonderful meal, you should enjoy that meal, even if it's a simple meal. For those of you that are married, yeah, this sound this might sound strange to you. God wants you to enjoy your spouse to enjoy your marriage, to enjoy your family, your parents, a good book, good music, another sunrise, a vacation maybe that God gives you. God wants you to enjoy these things. Christians ought to be the biggest pleasure seekers in the universe because the greatest pleasure that anyone could ever know is God himself. The psalmist talks about this again and again and again. In Psalm 34, for instance, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So God isn't just an abstract idea or something to study and something to think about and something to take notes on. God is someone uh, who we are to taste and, and who we are to experience that God is good. In Psalm 16, he says, to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is a fullness of of joy. Psalmist says, man, God, when I'm in your presence, when I worship you, when I'm in your word, when I'm walking with you, there's this joy, there's this peace that goes beyond comprehension at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Psalm 42 is the deer pants for, for flowing streams. My soul pants, it yearns for you, God. I just love to be with you. You're what quenches my, the, the thirst of my soul. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come? I can't wait to be before God again. You see, folks, we were, we were wired by God to seek pleasure, the, the problem is that our sinful hearts often seek pleasure in the wrong places. I was reading an experiment this week uh, that uh, some, some scientists did. Let me just read this for you. This is great. It says, that A male butterfly will ignore a living female butterfly of his own species in favor of a painted cardboard butterfly if the cardboard one is big. If the cardboard butterfly is bigger than he is, bigger than any female butterfly ever could be, the male butterfly will court that piece of cardboard until it dies. And nearby, the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. And this is what we do with God. Our living, wonderful, amazing God. We are chasing cardboard, things that will never satisfy us. In Jeremiah 2, this is what God says about, about his people Israel. He says, for my people have committed two evils, two things that are destroying them. One, God says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. So you think about it this way. God says, I am the, I'm the fountain of, of, of life, of, of the soul. I bring joy, I bring peace, I bring happiness, and they've forsaken me. Instead, what have they done? They went out and they ewed cisterns, or that is they dug wells for themselves, broken wells that can't hold water. So there's God bubbling up, springing up with life with water, and they're over here digging wells where there is no water. This is Satan's strategy to get us to devalue the truest pleasure and elevate the cardboard in life. Or or maybe to misuse the good pleasures that God gives us. Or to put them above God or to obsess on them. John Piper did a slight alteration to the opening line of the Westminster Confession. He he rewrote it to read this. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So James goes on and says this. You adulterous people, you, you people who have committed spiritual adultery, if you will, do you not know that friendship with the world, so he's going to use this phrase twice here, that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, and therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now the world he's talking about here is not a, not a group of people or the physical planet that we're thinking of. The world in the Bible refers to a, a, a strategy of living that is designed not by God, uh, but by the devil. So, for instance, God has designed a a strategy, a way for you to live. He's made that clear in His Word. Satan has also come up with a strategy for living. And it's different from God's. It, it, It encourages you to value yourself above God and above other people. Maybe it doesn't deny God's existence altogether, as we looked at a few weeks ago with demons, but it it devalues God, certainly. It questions the ability of God to really make you happy. It elevates the priority of physical pleasure and comfort, sitting on the couch, having wealth that can buy you anything you want, and, and being materialistic. And it seeks fulfillment, basically, in the created thing instead of the Creator of all good things worldliness it's been said is kind of like driving down an old highway so between my junior and senior year in high school, I lived, uh, I had a friend whose dad owned a ranch in Idaho, in, in Hagerman, Idaho, and I, so I lived in Hagerman for the summer, and Hagerman really isn't near anything, so if you want to go anywhere, you have to get on a, several highways that lead out of town, and these old highways, if you've ever been on them, that, you know, they don't pay very often, a lot of semis, and they get these grooves in the road, you know what I'm talking about? Just enough of a depression in the road, to where you could pull your pickup truck on the road to go to town and you could just literally take your hand off the steering wheel because the grooves are so deep and it just kind of follows it along. Not that I ever did that, but you, you, know, you could do that. It, the vehicle just kind of slips into the rut and it, it just stays there and it follows the path of everyone who came before it. That's what worldliness is like. Worldliness is like this. Satan has made some grooves in society. Right? Some grooves. And it's easy to get stuck in those grooves. Here's how you live your day. Here's how you think. Here's how you act. Here's how you feel. Here's how you decide. Here's how you value. And if you get out of that groove, you're going to stick out. And you're going to be uncomfortable. And you're gonna, there's going to be tension. And, and people are going to come after you. And so just stick in the, in the rut. Just stay in the rut. It's easy to get stuck in the rut of this world. And it's hard to get out. It's easy to get stuck in the rut of the world and the way that we do family and marriage and education and a job and spend money and spend time and what we watch. It's easy to be in that groove. It's hard sometimes to get out. James says this is what it means to be a friend of the world, to just choose the world's way over God's way, to just get in the rut and go along. It's just easy, it's simple, it's comfortable. But the irony, he says, is this, that what you end up with is a Christian someone for whom Jesus died when that person was an enemy of God. They come to faith in Christ they become children of God and now they lower themselves to live as a redeemed enemy of God once again. He goes on and says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says this? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So now this is an interesting passage. Scholars kind of wrestle with this. Some people think that the spirit The spirit he's talking about here is the spirit of a person. You get that sense in the NIV. But I I think very clearly this is not what he's talking about here. He's speaking to believers, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that God has placed inside of every one of us. And and, and the point is this. God has put his spirit in us, and yet we get in the groove of the world. We, We live in that groove. We stay in that groove. While the Spirit's trying to get us out of that groove... And what we're doing is grieving the Holy Spirit, but even when we sin, even when we grieve the Spirit, even when we yield to the ways of the world, God still loves us. (laughs) This is the the crazy part. God still desires us to return, to, to get off the road, to get out. Of the right, because he knows that our earthly passions and living in that worldly way will never please us. It will never give us peace. And he knows that what we need is to be filled with him. So, what's the answer? If we live in a world set against us, if we live in a world and a culture with this right, with this groove, how do we get out of it? Well, what James says is this what we need is even more grace in our life. Not just grace, but even more grace. This is what he says in verse 6. He goes on to say this. So what's the solution? But God gives more grace. That's kind of an interesting thought. More grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the answer to our problem, the answer when we're stuck in the right, the answer when we're conflicted. On the one hand, I want to love God. On the other hand, I kind of love stuff and pleasure. The answer to our problem oftentimes we think, is to try harder. But the answer to our problem is grace. And not just grace, but more grace. Why more grace? Well, because he's not talking about saving grace. Every believer who's come to Christ has been given God's grace. And when we were given that initial grace, our eyes are open to the truth of Christ. We are given faith. But what he says here, literally, is more grace or a greater grace. What is this greater grace he's talking about? It's a grace that brings us to a place of repentance. A place that helps us realize that we are double-minded, that we are double-hearted. And maybe that some of you came in this morning and that hadn't even crossed your mind. But as we're going through this this morning, you're starting to realize, I am kind of double-minded. I am kind of double-hearted. What do I do with that? Well, again, this is what more grace does for us. It helps us see our sin, it, it brings us to a place of repentance, to love God first, to seek him as our greatest joy. In Hebrews four sixteen it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We're in a time of need, folks. If we're double-hearted, if we're double-minded, this is a time of need. What we need from God is his grace. It reminds me of the song Amazing Grace in verse 3. It goes like this. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We're not only saved by grace, we stay saved by grace. We are saved by grace, and we are sanctified, or we are grown by grace. In John 1.16 John says this, for from his fullness, that is of Christ, we have received, notice, grace upon grace, or as some translate, grace following grace, or grace heaped upon grace. In other words, no matter what challenges we face in life, no matter how many times we stumble and fall, God has more grace for us. So in other words, God isn't just saying, well, I gave you grace, I saved you, what more do you want me to do? Like, get up and get this done. No, God has more grace for us. So how do we get that grace? How do we access it? Well, James, well, he tells us. But he gives us more grace. How? Therefore, Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the the who? Humble. What does it mean, by the way, to be humble? Well, it means, first of all, I recognize who God is. And I recognize that I'm not God. (laughs) It means that I recognize my sin. It means that I recognize my need. I recognize my my double-mindedness. And it means I trust Jesus. I, I put my trust in Him and what He did on the cross to save me of my sin and to deliver me to heaven. But even more than that, I trust Him to be what I need on a daily basis. I trust Him to give me what I need and what I don't need. I can trust Him with that as well. What he says is God gives more grace. So here's a way of thinking about it. So right, last week we talked a little bit about, uh, remember we talked about spiking the ball if you were here, that's, that some of you like to spike the ball. So I got, I got um, email, I got texts, um, and I, got, I had conversations with some of you in person and you confessed to me. You said, Pastor... I love to spike the ball. Would you pray for me? Some of you just said, like, I lo- when I get in arguments, I want to win the argument, and when I win the argument, it's like I just got a touchdown and I just want to spike the ball. And some of you confessed to me, you said, you know what, Be- I-, I walked out of church this weekend, I'm not going to do that anymore, and before the end of the day, I had spiked the ball several times. In fact, somebody said, before I even got in the driveway, I had spiked the ball. And, and some of you may feel like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to stop spiking the ball. And here's what James says. There is grace for that. There is a greater grace for those of you who like to spike the ball. Maybe some of you realize this morning you're just materialistic. You love stuff and maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I can ever stop loving stuff more than God. James says there is grace for that. Maybe some of you are just very envious, very very jealous of other people. It's hard for you to just be happy for them and trust God for what you have and what you don't have. And you don't, you just, you think, I don't know, could I ever be like what God's describing? Here's the good news. You can, because there's grace for that. Some of you are short-tempered. There's more grace for that. Maybe some of you are dealing with a, a medical condition right now and you just, you don't know. How are you are going to get through this? James says there's more grace for that. Some of you, in fact, many of you in our congregation right now are, are grieving over the loss of a loved one over the last few years and you may wonder at times, how do I get through this? And James would say very, very compassionately, there's grace. Yeah, there, there's grace for that. Maybe God is calling you to to pack up and move to another part of the world with the gospel and it scares you. James would say, you know what? There's grace for that. Maybe some of you are dealing with the disappointment of a personal failure. You, You blew it and you just keep beating yourself up over it. And you don't know if you'll ever get past this. And James would say, you know what? There's more grace. There's grace for that. Some of you... Like others who have gone through this in the last years at our church, maybe God is challenging you to change your career. and oh, Maybe your paycheck would be smaller. Or God's calling you to be more generous. God's f- calling you to forgive someone you've just never been able to forgive or, or to repent of a sin you've never been. Maybe you've tried and tried and just keep going back to that sin. Here's what James would say. Don't give up. Don't give up. There's actually grace for that. This is, uh, this is Olympic time, I heard. We, we picked a perfect time. We, we got rid of our, our cable TV like a couple weeks ago. I didn't think about the timing and now I hear there's Olympics going on. I, I don't know, but uh, you know, so you can always tell when there's Olympics because all the same old stories come up every two years about sports. And I was reading one the other day that I've read many times before, but I want to read it for you because I think it brings out a really good point. This is about the four-minute mile and you may, you may know the history of this. It wasn't until 1852 that records were kept for running the mile. And over the years, though the pace had inched faster, there was a long-standing debate as to whether or not it was actually possible to run a mile in less than four minutes. In fact, in all of recorded history, it had never been accomplished. And in 1945, a Swede by the name of Gunder Haig came within 1.4 seconds. But then for the next 10 years... No matter how many people tried, no one could break through the four-minute mile. And so for a decade of futile attempts, it just basically only increased the mystique of the barrier that seemed impossible to break. But then one blustery afternoon in Oxford, England, on May 6th, 1954, a 25-year-old medical student by the name of Roger Bannister uh, ran what was dubbed the Miracle Mile. He crossed the finish line in an unbelievable three minutes and 59.4 seconds. So for over a hundred years think about this, for over a 100 years, not even one person, not one time, had been able to break through that barrier. Can you guess how long it took before the four-minute mile was, was broken again? Forty-six days. Just a month and a half later, Australian John Landry ran it in 3 minutes and 58 seconds. And within two years, 50 more runners around the world had accomplished the same feat. Today, there are thousands of people who have broken through the once seemingly impossible barrier. You see, there was a powerful mental limitation on what was believed was possible. And until someone broke through it, it, was greatly, it greatly limited what could be accomplished. And what happens in sports happens every day in life, even happens in our spiritual lives. Oftentimes we end up being held back by a limited conception of what is possible with God. Here's what I mean. If you've ever thought to yourself, I would love to live like we've been talking about, but I'll never be able to live the kind of life that God desires. I'll never be able to love God more than my passions. If you've ever thought, I I would love to love people like God says. I've tried to love people like God says. I, I can't love people like God says. Here's the good news through faith in Christ, there is grace for that. Because people are breaking through those barriers, people are doing these things. And you can too. Not in your own power, but through the grace that comes through faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. See, Jesus really can be your greatest pleasure. You don't have to obsess and fight to get the cardboard that you want that will never satisfy you. You can trust God to give you what you really need. And you can trust him with the things that you don't have. And here's the the great thing. When you can do that, When you can come to a place of just really trusting God, like you've trusted him for your salvation, right? What if you trusted him for your everyday life the way you're trusting him for heaven? What if you trusted him in terms of your pleasures the way you trust him for salvation? Here's what happens. When you're able to do that, you no longer have to obsess about the things you don't have. You don't have to fight with people to get what you want. You can trust God to give you what you really need and then you're free to enjoy the things you already have. Like isn't it true that often we don't enjoy the things right in front of us because we're so obsessed on the stuff that we don't have? It unlocks a door to really enjoy all the great things that God has given you. And folks, you know as well as I do, we are immensely blessed people. There's a lot for us to enjoy Instead of focusing on the stuff we don't have, it, it sets us free to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. It sets us free to begin to focus on other people and serve other people and love other people and be patient with people and forgive people and overlook an offense and to really love them. Why? Because there is grace even for that. You may say, I gotta know, that sounds impossible. James would say, humble yourself, and there's grace for that. There's more grace. Well, we're going to continue this conversation actually next week. But I want to I want to close this in prayer. And here's my here's my leading question for you as we pray.